Let me ask you a question. Do you have a deep knowing that you're only just scratching the surface of where you're capable of taking your business growth? Are you successful but have some invisible hurdles that are slowing you down? Business growth comes from creating and implementing strategies and frameworks, but strategies and frameworks on their own will not take you to the level I know you desire and are capable of. Living in alignment with your unique human design will help you to attract the abundance you are ready for. And I've just created a free guide to help you understand your unique human design blueprint. It's called the Human Design Advantage, and you can get your copy over at samanthariley.global forward slash advantage. Not having safety and care that I should have had growing up, then going out on my own, trying to figure that out. I had a dream to be a performing artist. And basically the story is nothing was going to stop me. My name is Samantha Riley, and this is the podcast for coaches, course creators, and experts who want to grow their influence, income, and impact to take their coaching business to a million dollars and beyond. We're going to share the latest business growth, marketing, and leadership strategies, as well as discussing how you can use your human design to create success in business and life inside and out create the influence, income and impact you need to build your business so you can create your ideal lifestyle. It's time to make a difference and scale up. This is the Influence by Design podcast. Welcome to today's episode of Influence by Design. I'm your host for today, Samantha Riley, and I'm very excited because today we're going to talk about being relentless and tenacious as an entrepreneur, which is one of the traits that we all must have to be in this crazy world of business and entrepreneurship. So today I've invited Natasha Miller, who's the CEO of Entire Productions, and she's been an Inc. 5000 list of the fastest growing companies in America for three years in a row. I'm going to leave the rest up to her to tell us because it sounds way more exciting coming out of her mouth. So thanks for joining us, Natasha. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very much looking forward to this. Absolutely. We've had a couple of amazing conversations already, and I'm really looking forward to what we're going to deep dive today. Before we jump into the story and go back, why don't we start in the current time? What is it that you're doing right now and who are the clients that you work with? What I'm doing right now is I finally figured out the key to success that I've been looking for for 20 years, and that is being able to work on my business as a strategist and a visionary, my core business, entire production. So I work probably 20% of my time or less on that business. That's the one that got me on all the lists. And I am developing a course to teach entrepreneurs how to scale and grow their businesses for authors, for entrepreneurs that want to write their book. I'm also doing a course about how to write a memoir. And I'm putting so much energy into that as well as the launch of my own book. That's really what I'm focusing on right now. Absolutely. And your book coming up is due for release in March of this year, which is Relentless, Homeless Teen to the Entrepreneur Dream. And that's where I want to go back to now because you've had an amazing story of entrepreneurship. You've been doing this thing for a really long time. I'd love you to go back and share what it was or where you came from that had you going into your own business. I was studying the violin since fourth grade and I got pretty good at it. 
pretty quickly. I think I had a natural ability. Technically, I wasn't the best, but I got around that. So my first professional performance was with a string quartet that I was in for the inauguration of a local governor in Iowa. And the following year, I found myself on Christmas Day in a homeless shelter for youth, and I was never able to return home. So if you can imagine at 16 years old, if you're on your own, you have to fend for yourself. And so I took other jobs, you know, hostessing, working at an ice cream parlor, these kind of things. But I had the skill of being a violinist and being a musician. And even though I was young, I just threw caution to the wind and started performing for as many weddings and social events and corporate events I could possibly do. And I think that was more of a necessity versus this internal drive to be a successful entrepreneur. Mm, Let me just ask you a little bit about that because you had a natural talent and a natural ability, but obviously at that age, you weren't the best in the world. What was it that made you just decide, you know what, I'm just going to put myself out there and do this rather than I need to be better? (laughs) That never crossed my mind. So I've never been with that instrument. I've never had really imposter syndrome. And I think the music that was coming from me, I knew was good. I also knew what my weak points were, but I kind of covered them. So I wasn't a great reader of music above, you know, the high E on the staff and on the violin, it goes way, way, way up, but I had good ears. So my professor would play something and then I would play it back. And then I just figured that out, but I just went for it. And again, I'm not sure if I would have been as tenacious had I had not the necessity to provide for myself. I'll never know. Mm. Absolutely. It's amazing what you have to do when there is no choice. And I can't imagine what that was like at such a young age, being able to do that. How did you end up going into your first business from there? Because I think that it's very easy for all of us to get caught in stories of we need things to be perfect or we need things to be right. Or, you know, we just don't have what other people have. Like there's so many stories that we tell ourselves. How did you end up going into your own business? I was being asked because I had a pretty good marketing prowess. I was being asked to play for people's events two, three, four times in one single night, which clearly I cannot do. So instead of turning them down, which most musicians would say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm booked. Mm -hmm. Click, right? I said, I'm so sorry. I can't personally be there. I have another engagement, but I can bring in another group that's as good as I am, probably better and manage them for you. So you can have this great experience. And I started doing that at a very young age without a business license, without knowing it was a business. And I turned that into entire productions finally in year 2001. And we started really producing music for events that were within these two genres I knew classical and jazz. Mm -hmm. But then as we started going out to market, people would say, oh, do you have, you know, West African high life music? Do you have a dance band? Do you have a DJ? Can you bring in a cigar bar? Do you have aerialists? 
I need a snake charmer. (laughs) So it just grew and grew and grew from there. And now I'm an expert on all weird things that people have at their events. And then in the last five years, one of my advisors really suggested that I diversify instead of just doing entertainment into something else. And that something else was event planning. It was a, you know, surefire move. And so all those clients that for 15 years, we were producing music for their events that they were planning. Now we're planning some of them from A to Z. So entire productions has two main divisions, event production and entertainment production. Sometimes we work on an event and we don't have any entertainment coming. We're just planning it. Not that often. And some of our clients are just booking the entertainment from us. So that was the natural progression. And I don't perform for events anymore. I haven't for years and years and years. What are your biggest learnings from growing that business to the multi-million dollars that it's become? Oh, my gosh. And I know there's a million of them, I can just imagine. But what would be some of the, the, you know, the biggest takeaways that anyone that's listening, because obviously this is, it's a service business, but it's own niche. But some of the things that we can take away as coaches and consultants. There are three main things that come to mind. One is building in profit into your business before everything else. So making sure that you have a goal for a profit margin and doing everything you can get to get there with being able to service your clients and have a great culture. The second thing is people. I didn't quite understand what I'd heard so many years, like it's all about your people. I didn't really resonate with that until when COVID hit. And then when my people really stepped up and I felt like we went to war together I started to really open up and understand. And I think it also was that I was working in my business still quite a bit and not on it. And I was like just one of them mentally. So I was like, well, why do they need you know special attention? I don't give myself special attention. That is not the right way to go about it. <laughs> so I've really switched that around. That's really, really important. And then cash flow. It actually should be up there with profit, but Cash flow and profit were my number one goal of really focus this year. I didn't have to focus on the people part because it became a natural thing once I began to really understand how important it is. So cash flow, making sure that you have enough cash, that doesn't mean what your P&L looks like. It's a whole different beast. So those are the three top things. Let's go back to profit because I think that I personally, and I don't know if you've gone through this as well, I personally have found it easier when you have a set cost. So you've got your, you know, your musicians or your event costs, and it's easy to say, well, this is the amount, and then I need to put this much markup. So when I was in a product business, I found that much easier. I knew that I had to allow for freight. I knew that I had to allow for product costs, you know, hard business costs, whatever it was, and then I added my profit. As a coach, when you are first starting out and you're billing yourself out, I have found it's a little bit more tricky to actually come up with those, where is the profit margin? So I'd love you to share some sort of amazing wisdom that I know that you have around how we can start to figure out what the profit margin is when we're starting off 
just on our own. Right. When you're on your own, your overhead is where your office is. It is, you know, your attorneys, your consultants, CPA, CFO, maybe. So you have to consider all of those things because it's not the first thing people think of when they think of, you know, how can I find profit? And then, you know, coaches typically, there are various ways. You can charge by the hour, you can charge by the package. I have only done a little bit of one-on-one coaching, but what I'm learning as I learn to become more of a coach is that, especially with, you know, you and I, we've been in business so long, we have an incredible amount to offer to people and it is valued at way more than, you know, a thousand dollars an hour. Like really, if what we do can impact somebody and increase their bottom line by 50%, are we really worth only $250 an hour? Mm-hmm. I don't think so. That doesn't set right. But, you know, there are coaches at a lot of different levels, right? There may be a coach that has been in business for five years. That's a different thing. So I think you have to balance so many of these things. But, you know, watch your expenses, marketing, design for your letterhead, like branding and design is important. Is it $10,000 important? Or is it $50,000 important? I can't answer that question for you, but everything that you do in your business, what packages that you take when like, for instance, you have a Zoom account, right? Do you have an account for a thousand people? Do you also have a webinar account? Do you need that? Do you need to be paying that extra money? Another thing for entire productions is that we were spending, one year we spent $65,000 on credit card processing fees. Oh, whoa. <laughs> I didn't even bat an eye because we had so much revenue coming in. Uh-huh. When I realized, when I saw that number as a standalone, I was like, oh, no, 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 no. So we figured out a way to invoice our clients. And if they wanted to pay by credit card, they certainly can, but they have to pay the fee. So Ever since I put that in. And so what does my profit margin look like? Well, if you were going to, you know, go back one year, it'd be $65,000 more, right? Mm -hmm. So what I'm really hearing, and this is something that is absolute music to my ears, is that you need the data. So we had a very similar situation back in the day, like I said, when we had our retail stores and we looked at our credit card processing fees, we did something a little bit different. We went back to our bank and renegotiated that interest rate because if we don't have the data, we can't do something about it. So really, you really, really need to pay attention to what's going on in your business and not just leave it to accidenti. Mm-hmm which I'm very aware is a made-up word, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us more about people. You mentioned that the second thing was people. Tell us more about what you mean by that. Yeah, so people. So once you have, we won't even talk about how to find the people because that is really a challenge. And then also how to develop them and keep them and retain them and pay them. I live in San Francisco Bay Area. I can't even tell you. People are making a lot of money here. But once you get them into your world, you are introducing them to a team of people. It's a living organism, right? And they're now part of it. And 
They need to be nurtured. They need to be trained. And how does that happen? That happens with human capital. That takes time and investment of that person. So you now have, like, I just hired a new employee and I paid $15,000 to a recruiter to find her. And I'm very happy with that. But that's a lot. That's a big chunk of money, right? Then to have, if you don't cultivate and curate months to nine months later, they're not really into it. You've then now wasted all this time training, all this time ushering this person into the fabric of your business. And you may have lost the $15,000 that you invest. Like it's a mess. And, you know, people are one of the most challenging elements of business because we're humans. We're very complicated, right? Even the best people can be complicated and have complicated situations. So if you're going to go into business and you're serious, you have to be thinking about these things. Now, I made it through my business through 20 years of not really getting that right a lot for a while. Mm -hmm. But what I think makes me stand out is that I did fight to figure it out. I learned. Sometimes when you read and learn and you're told, it doesn't necessarily come to fruition. It doesn't bubble up to the top. But once it does, which it has for me, thankfully, I'm holding on for dear life. And it's very important to me that I treat my employees almost like almost like their clients, you know, like the thank yous, the attention that I give them, the, you know, the training, the service that I give to them is so much different now than before. And I do think I treat them similarly to what people would consider, oh, you should treat your clients that way, but really your employees? Yes, really your employees. So with you paying $15,000 for a recruiter to find the right person, I'm interested to know, have you always gone to find the best person, no matter what the cost for that person? Or was there a time you hired at a budget? Because I think that there's a balance here. I still hire some roles on a budget. For instance, I have a couple of virtual assistants in the Philippines where I'm paying $8 an hour for them to do incredible work. They're doing really great with, right? But this other role requires a little bit different of a situation being in this market, being, you know, in this time zone, having the skills that these virtual assistants in the Philippines actually don't have. So there's a huge disparity in pay, but also, you know, our dollar is very strong here. Mm -hmm. I am paying a good wage in the Philippines to, you know, my virtual assistants. But why did I do that? Definitely cost savings, right? So, but in the past, with in-person, like local talent, I've definitely paid a budget cost. But you know what? Recently, in the last three, four years, I had some roles come in at a very low amount. And now I've raised them all the way to like almost double their salary. That's so awesome. When you first wound up on the, oh, actually, I'm going to ask a question before that one. Did you go out to specifically or set a challenge to be on the Inc. 5000 list of fastest growing companies? Or is that something that just happened? 
So really curious to know about the vision and the goal or the flow. Which one was it? Yes. So 11, 12 years ago, a friend of mine had a larger business, maybe a $10 million business. And to me, he seemed so big and so fancy and so successful. At the time, I think I had a $1.5 million business. And he came out on the Inc. 5000 list of fastest growing companies in America. And I was like, I want that for myself, but I didn't know how to start. I didn't know where to go. I was reading the magazine, but not enough to probably not month to month. So I didn't see the ads. So what you do is you apply to be considered for one of the fastest growing companies in America. And then you have to send your tax returns and they have to be signed off by a CPA. So they are not messing around. So the first year that I entered, I just so happened to have had a 65% increase year over year. Now that alone doesn't put you on the list because you're now being balanced between, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of other businesses. And if most of the businesses skewed 80 to 360,000% growth, I'm not going to be on the list. So it's a little bit of a math problem, but let's just say the answer to your question is once I heard about it, I wanted it for myself. Then years later, for some reason, I just happened to apply. I can't even tell you what prompted that. And then because my business had done such great growth, because they're looking to past year, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I got on the list and I, you would have thought that I was awarded like the jackpot, right? From the scratchers or a Grammy award. That's how like lit up I was. And it really has afforded me great things in business because I've been asked to be a speaker at the Inc. 5000 conference. I've been a consultant for them, for other entrepreneurs to give advice and mentorship to. I've been written about in the magazine. You know, there's 5,000 people that, you know, are on this list and I was able to be featured. It's just an incredible experience. So I don't know, enter all the contests, I guess is a good way to recap that. Mm, Be intentional, know where you're going. So you mentioned that your business growth came down to profit margin, people and cash flow. Once you decided that you wanted to be on the Inc. 5000 list of the fastest growing companies, were they specifically the three things that you focused on or was it different looking forward to looking back? Yes. So when I was the first year that I was on the Inc. 5000, if I would have been interviewed and asked what my profit was, it may have been an embarrassing response. Second year, I mean, the profit wasn't great. I was profitable, but to what extent? And I think what extent depends on what kind of business you have and what your chart of accounts and PNL are. But it's something that's really important to me now. So I think my focus really hadn't been on profit and cash flow until more recently. So what was your focus back then to get that fast growth? Revenue, Mm. top line revenue. And a lot of it because of what we do is pass through. And we didn't have to necessarily take in all that revenue, but I knew that it would make our bottom, you know, our top line revenue look great. 
And so that was important. It is a vanity metric, but that vanity metric put me on a list that has given me so much access to a lot of opportunities. It's also an incredible marketing tool. Mm. Let's talk about that very quickly, because I think that's so, so important. Because if we don't have the visibility, people don't know who we are. So apart from the Inc. 5000 list and actually showing up on that, and you mentioned speaking and other consulting, what other, I guess, what's the word I'm looking for? Like what else have you sort of put yourself forward for, I guess? And what has that enabled to happen in your business? So we also applied for the Entrepreneur Magazine Entrepreneur 360 Awards, which I'm not sure they are giving out any longer, but we, I won that two years in a row. And that didn't have just to do with revenue. It was a little more balanced with, you know, revenue, what kind of work you're doing, what you're putting out into the world. So again, feel good, good for marketing, good for, you know, I'm in the event industry. It's not a really sophisticated industry. So when people hear I'm on the Inc. 5000 or Entrepreneur 360, they think I'm from another planet, right? (laughs) It looks and feels like so much bigger than what the reality of that accolade is. So awesome. Now, we did mention at the beginning of the episode that you've got a book releasing in March, Relentless, A Homeless Team to the Entrepreneur Dream, which is a memoir. I'd love you to share a little bit about what's in the book, just to give us a little bit of a taster. What's in the book? The book really is raw and honest and a little uncomfortable at some points. There's that are true that I'm kind of biting my nails figuratively, wondering, should I have put that in there? Because everyone's going to read it. Everyone that reads it is going to know these secrets about me that aren't necessarily, you know, I'm not proud of them, but they were, you know, the thing I'm referencing is a coping mechanism and not to give a spoiler, but it's not drugs. It's not alcohol. It's none of the regular things that people tend to go to, but it chronicles my life of not having safety and care that I should have had growing up, then going out on my own trying to figure that out. I had a dream to be a performing artist. And basically the story is nothing was going to stop me. And along the way, there were some big bumps. There were big inflection points to the positive and really low inflection points that, you know, hopefully the regular normal human being doesn't have to suffer. We all suffer a certain amount, but I would not wish my life story on anyone but it does resolve in such a beautiful way. And again, the book resolves in a beautiful way, but I still have some things that I want to do. But in general, the most important thing to me is that for those who find themselves with the book and are reading it, that it impacts them positively in some way. If it's a millimeter, an inch, a yard, a mile, a year, if I get them thinking about going to the thing that they've always wanted to do and never thought they could, but even more getting to something they never even realized was in their reach, because that's the story of my life. Then, you know, I want to impact as many people as I can. Now, I do not need to transform your whole life. I'm not trying to, this is not a how-to or a self-help book, 
But if you read this book and I haven't moved you to think about something in your own life for yourself, or even maybe how you're treating someone else, then that's going to be a disappointment to me. So that's where I'm at in my life is I do know that this book, you will read it and go, oh my God, I cannot believe that this happened to her. And I can't believe she did all this stuff. And if she can do it, I can definitely do it. Mm, That's why I'm looking forward to reading. I love memoirs. I love Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. And whilst we don't learn anything about necessarily about how to do business, I think it's just that reaffirmation that, okay, so it's not just us that has all these stumbling blocks. It's not just us that really, you know, is tenacious behind the scenes. It's not just us where, oh, okay, that month we could only just, you know, cover wages or whatever it is. And so I think it's really nice to read these stories of other people and realize that there are so many of us that have these crazy journeys and that it's okay and it's actually part of the journey. So I really look forward to reading that. Where can people go to get a copy of your book, Natasha? Right now you can go to officialnatashamiller.com and all the information will be there. Perfect. I really look forward to that, to reading that. Thank you so much for being on the show today and sharing just a little of your story. We look forward to reading the book and hearing more about that and have a wonderful 2022. Thank you, you too. Thank you. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Influence by Design podcast. If you want more, head over to samanthariley.global forward slash podcast for the show notes and links to today's gifts and sponsors. And if you're looking to connect with other coaches and experts who are growing and scaling their business too, come and join the Coaches Course Creators and Speakers group on Facebook. The links are all waiting for you over at samanthariley.global.